I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey there, welcome to the Pink Elephant Podcast, where we talk about the biggest undiscussed issue in the body of Christ, that despite all we know, it can feel like there is something missing in our experience of faith. You know, I'm really excited about this fortnight's episode. It's a topic that I definitely don't feel equipped to talk about, and and nor do I really think I fully understand it. Although, you know, how can you ever fully understand everything in the Bible anyway? But what I do know has had a significant impact on me. The topic is oneness. There is this remarkable passage in John 17, and I get tingly whenever I read it. Jesus is praying just before he is to be arrested. From verse 20, he begins to pray for every person who will come to believe in him. But he says something so mysterious. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's praying for oneness, that we would be one with him and each other. And he continues to repeat this idea a few times in the passage. Furthermore, the scriptures imply this quality to our relationship with God regularly. It is a very significant concept that could change the way we comprehend our relationship with Jesus because it would change the way we actually relate to Jesus. And I had never heard about it until only a few years ago when I had a dream that detailed a strategy for our small groups ministry way back when I was a small groups pastor. Now, ordinarily, I would begin by defining the topic. You know, I have my little dot points of what it looks like or what to expect when this is happening. But this idea is still so mysterious to me that I'm not really sure I could adequately outlay it for you, you know, what exactly oneness is. It is another one of those ideas that does have this two-directional nature, though, and it, it is applicable to our relationship with God and our relationship with the body of Christ. Everything else is really hard to kind of capture. So what I am going to do instead is try and paint a picture for you through the various scriptural ideas we see pointing to this concept or implying it so that you get a feel for it rather than a dot-pointed list, as I am obviously prone to doing. So here it goes. In John 6, Jesus makes this wildly provocative statement that at the time had some of his followers leaving him and some of the Pharisees ready to kill him. He calls himself the bread of life, the living bread that came down from heaven. It is this idea that he came from heaven that particularly perturbs the Pharisees. But he doesn't end it there. He goes on to say this, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. This is not the only time he says something along these lines. When he is having the last supper with his disciples, he says the classic statements that are often recited during most communion messages. It says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. In both instances, it is implied that union with Christ is to consume him. Now, that is a really strange concept. It's, it's not enough that they were eating with him. You know, when we talk about sharing, we presume eating with someone is to share with them, right? But this is saying that union with Christ is not just being with him. It's not enough to have a memento or a ritual that reminds us of him either. Communion with Christ is to consume him, his very being, his very nature, What a strange idea, right? When we take communion, it's as though we are partaking of him, of his personhood and his sacrifice, not just his teachings, which we would usually call spiritual food. Now, in this passage, he is the food and we eat him. Now, I have to admit that when I initially considered these ideas whilst reading scripture, I was like, Jesus, you sound like a vampire. You know, this is not what I would be telling new Christians or people who don't know Jesus. I'd be a little embarrassed to say that I believe in a God that tells me to eat his body and drink his blood because I know exactly what they'd be thinking. Yeah, they'd be thinking I'm part of a cult and they'd be thinking you're part of a cult. Like if people freak out over hands being raised in a service, imagine how freaked out they would be to see God telling us or inciting us to cannibalism. Yeah, and they would take it literally, of course. They probably wouldn't think it was like some symbolism. But this is important to Jesus. He used this language deliberately because he was trying to demonstrate something about the nature of our relationship with him. He was trying to demonstrate something about the level of intimacy required to follow Jesus and live out the life of a disciple. And the scriptures continue to affirm this idea that is not simply talking about walking with Christ or eating with Christ or living with Christ. The word scripture frequently uses is in to be in Christ. It's a much more intimate idea than simply being around him or being in his presence. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It doesn't say of Christ or with Christ or following Christ or even believe in Christ. It just says in Christ. Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. There are times when this word in is used interchangeably with belong also, which I think is a little easier to understand. You know, belonging is this really alluring idea and we're going to come back to that later actually. So in addition to all of the in Christ passages, which I've only you know touched on three, there's actually so many more, and the prayer that Jesus says in John 17, We also have scriptures like this, John 14, verse 20, where Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So we are in Christ, who is in us, and he is also in the Father? That sounds a little scary, right? It it almost is getting a bit blasphemous, you know, and you would be right to feel a little uncomfortable because that's so different to how I've thought of my relationship with Christ. What about 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17? It says, but he who is joined to the Lord, that's us, becomes one spirit with him. It doesn't say you receive his spirit, which is obviously true also. It says we become one spirit with him, all of us who choose him, one spirit with 
with him. And then we have the Apostle Paul make this incredible statement that outside of this topic of oneness is still unbelievably inspiring, but in the context of oneness, the statement becomes a deeply shaking idea. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying that though he lives his old life and the person who he was is dead, he is now so united in Christ as a new creation that he identifies only with Christ and not at all with the old life and the things of his past. It's almost like those things never existed. All he knows now is this new life where Christ lives in him. This is such an astonishing display of oneness and such an incredible hope for those of us who would love to forget the past and love to forget the heritages that we have been a part of, that we are not proud of. The point is we are in Christ. We belong to him and he is in us. We have this mutual belonging when we receive Christ. It sounds almost sacrilegious, and that's because we would usually associate belonging with a possession that we own. And, and really, that's not the extent of belonging, right? And of course, we know we can't own God. But belonging is so much more than that. Belonging is about inclusion. And God displays this kind of inclusion more purely and perfectly than any other being could express. We aren't able to get into this too much, but you need to know that belonging is a basic human need. I've heard many a preacher refer to the Maslow hierarchy of needs in messages that point to our basic human need for love. What is frequently left out, though, is that Maslow's hierarchy also included belonging as equal in value to love. Yes, belonging is a basic human need as critical as love. Google it if you don't believe me, seriously. Humans will go to great lengths to feel a sense of belonging, and the research is all out there. The more we belong, the better we do at school, the better we do at work, the better our self-esteem. Alternatively, the less we belong, the more depressed we are, the more we would consider suicide, the more likely we underperform in school and life, and I could go on. Our choices are so influenced by how much we feel we belong. And here we have scripture telling us in such intimate detail that we belong in him and he has chosen to belong in us via his Holy Spirit. Jesus perfectly provides a framework for belonging through the nature of his relationship with us and the family of God. The first indication of this extreme inclusion is that he allows us to receive his Holy Spirit in the most influential and vulnerable of places. I'm talking about our hearts. As much as we can love our fellow man and they love us, there is a barrier to what kind of residence they can have in our hearts. We can have their words in our hearts, we can have memories in our hearts, but they can't have their entire being reside within our hearts. And let's be honest, if they could, and if we could do that, that's some like genie in the lamp level of control that probably is not healthy, right? 
And in our hearts, the Holy Spirit has no limitations on intimacy and the degree to which he offers himself to our whole being. I mean, that's actually quite staggering in itself, right? God is not hiding. The Holy Spirit is not hiding itself from us. He is fully immersed in us. No masks, no self-imposed barriers. He has expressed the utmost of authenticity and transparency when he takes residence in your heart. Consequently, you can't really hide yourself from him either, but let's be honest, that doesn't stop us from trying to, nor does it stop us from failing to acknowledge or be aware of the depths to which God has gone to enhance our feeling of connection, intimacy, and inclusivity by having his spirit abide in us. Now that's level one. And I've got to be honest, it already trumps every other kind of intimacy and belonging that can really be obtained or achieved. Level two is that from the beginning of humankind's creation, we have shared in God's image, right? Yeah, we already know all of that, right? So, But that's all of us. It's not just us believers. It's everyone. This is the most precious truth. God in all his beauty and sanctity first shared himself with all of us by design. No other creation has been given this honor, not even the angels. So when Paul comes along and declares that we are a new creation, he is meaning that we are now both spirit and flesh. We have become both. We still have a choice in how much we adhere to the spirit, but the potential is there for those who believe to share in his nature. Imagine that, share in his nature. It means that we are able to see what he sees, love as he loves, give as he gives, literally do the same things that he can do and he does do. The potential resides in us always. Now, the spirit still operates on permission, and often we aren't experiencing all of what God promises via the presence of the Holy Spirit because we've limited that permission. But it doesn't change the fact that the potential is there. All those things that we have judged in ourselves, that we've condemned, those things we don't like, the things that we have, you know, foolishly believed could never change. All of that shows me that we don't comprehend the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. We often put more confidence in the flesh than we do in the spirit, forgetting that we are now also spirit beings and flesh. We are both. Our fundamental nature has changed. Even though we may still have much to do to renew our minds and see our behaviors align with the spirit of God. Who we are has now changed though, and we can choose to keep taking on his nature. When God calls us his children, it's incredibly special. But what I find most special about that is that he's basically calling us kin. Do you know what kin means? It's where we get the word kindred from. We are now one with him, his family, sharing in his likeness, and not only by our design. This is like a really special thing that I feel like I experience every time I meet another Indian person, right? Even though I've lived in Australia all my life, I am so immersed in the culture of Australia. When I meet other Indian people, there is something about the fact that we are kin, that they understand, that they know the the intricacies of our culture. They seem to see things the same kind of way. That's what it's like to be called kin when it comes to God. We see things differently now because he is our kin. Does this not shed such a different light on the instance when Jesus appears before Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? 
because we share in belonging and oneness we so so much we are so included and identified with Christ and he is identifying himself with us that he takes it personally when the early church was being persecuted by Paul and again in Matthew 25 verse 40 Jesus says the following in the parable of the sheep and goats truly i tell you whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me you did for me that's astounding what does that mean for us it means every hurt that you have gone through he considers it his pain Every way in which humankind has harmed one of us is as though he felt it too. And in Isaiah 53, 4, we see this when the prophet says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He's not only talking about sin here. He's not only talking about the fact that he took on our sin. It's saying that he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. This is the height of inclusivity. As much as we might be able to compassionately understand and empathize with each other's suffering, Jesus understands even more because he bore it all on the cross like it was his own. Now, I have taken some time to paint this picture of oneness, and I hope you're sort of getting the idea, right? We are no longer separate from God, not even a little. We don't just have access to God. We are one with him. He allows this oneness as well, which is amazing, And he is certainly not the barrier to us experiencing this oneness. Even when we are doing our daily tasks, you know, like just talking, eating, studying, all of those really mundane things that we rarely feel like spiritual about, we rarely see them as significant events. None of these activities are done apart from this oneness we have with him. We are one with him even when we don't realize it. It's the kind of intimacy that is so close that our thoughts can become his thoughts and that we can feel as he does. It is so special. So it's really difficult to find an analogy that really kind of exemplifies this oneness. So, But the closest I could think of is that of twins. You know, I've read a little bit about twins. I, I don't know many twins, but I've read a lot about it just because I find it to be such an intriguing miracle of life, right? Twins have this rare and unique relationship. They can sense what the other is thinking or feeling, you know, before the other one even says anything. I've heard twins say that they never feel really completely alone, like because they know that they have each other. They have been known to invent their own languages. And actually there's research and study that's been done on it because it's such a unique quality and a unique occurrence. They will often be able to feel that the other is in pain, even if they are not in the same geographical location. Now, I think this is a great way of understanding what we can begin to experience with God when we understand the level of belonging and oneness that we have with him. We are not separate. We're always inherently connected and one. So why is this so important? Why have I even decided to bring this up, right? Especially since it's not something I have said already that I'm really confident to talk about or feel really equipped to talk about. I would say a good chunk of you have never heard this idea before. I have never heard it preached in my entire life. Not in the Presbyterian church, not in the Pentecostal churches I've been to, and not in the Baptist church that I went to. Never once. I was 35 years old when I discovered this, and by that time I had been a believer for 27 years. 
something that could revolutionize the way we interpret our relationship to God. And I did not hear about it for the first 27 years of my Christian life. Me, who attended church twice on a Sunday, who was in small groups, in youth groups. Me, who avidly reads Christian books and devotionals by the bucket load. Me, who has done Bible college. I never heard of it. Well, at least not in this way. You know, it's like I've heard elements of it, but never like all together, never really facing this topic head on. We know we can have a relationship with God and that we can talk to him and we can approach him, that we might even be able to hear him, but to relate to him like this, how could something so central like the way in which we relate to God be missing from our discussions? be missing from our learning and teaching and and all of the different avenues that exist. We have been taught to spend time within, open our Bibles each morning and study his word. We ask ourselves how to apply what we've read. We pray, we have our prayer list, you know, the things we're believing God for. And once we are done, we mostly go about our day, mostly, you know, I'm, I'm obviously overgeneralizing here, but mostly. There isn't really anything in scripture that has told us that this is how a relationship with God is done, although it is wise. But if you go deeper, this is what you find out. God doesn't compartmentalize his time with us. He shares with us, ministers to us, resides in us 24-7. Routines might help us be intentional in engaging with him, but they aren't what typifies our relationship with God. We haven't gone deep enough. We have a constant and active bond with the Spirit. You are connected to the realm of the Spirit as equally as you are to this physical realm. It's hard for us to imagine this, but it's true. We just aren't always acknowledging or desiring to tap into that spirit realm, sometimes because our tendency is just to look to this physical realm and just not think that there's anything beyond this and anything beyond this life. And and so we're distracted, right? But knowing this changes everything. We never stop spending time with him. We are never separate from him. We belong in him every day at every moment. We have a constant SMS chat group with God and you don't even need to be saying things for him to be saying things to you. Our God time isn't isolated to the morning devotional. He could minister to me throughout the day at any moment. Whenever I'm feeling alone, I could pause and remind myself of my status of being in him and him in me. When I pray for someone, I can remember that I am one with him and that the actual spirit, one spirit with him is ministering to them. Okay, I'm obviously getting overexcited here. You can see that this is an area that I actually really want to learn more about. But what are the possible ramifications of such a revelation? Uh, You know, I haven't fully comprehended it, but here are just a few of the things that I can think of. Number one, a cure for loneliness. There are millions of people every day living in loneliness and they have no idea that we could live like this with Jesus. They have no idea that this is part of what Jesus offers us in a relationship with him. Now, I still think we need other people in our lives, but imagine the feelings of loneliness that could be reduced because of knowing Jesus like this. I'm not going to lie. I have felt lonely in my life as a believer. Sometimes you can have hundreds of people in your life, including a spouse, including your children and a thriving church community, and you can still feel lonely. And I think belonging is a big part of this, right? Because we don't realize that we are understood. 
We don't realize that we are kin. And yet Jesus is telling us that he is kin with us. He understands us. He hears us and he's there for us always. He's literally one with us. People don't know that. I didn't know that. Okay, so that's the first one. Number two, a different response to rejection. We could actually have a different response. Sadly, we are all too familiar with rejection and every human being knows what it's like at some point in their life to be excluded. It's painful and there is research to show that we experience rejection and exclusion the same way we experience physical pain. Our body actually responds to rejection as though it has been physically hurt. That's crazy, right? This kind of inclusion that Jesus offers us would equip us to be able to handle the rejection of other human beings. Because let's face it, it's never going to be perfect. It's part of our flesh nature that rejection exists and exclusion exists. Because when we're a part of a relationship that is perfectly inclusive, whilst it might hurt to be rejected by others, we would know that we still belong. We would still know that we belong to him, like the creator of the universe, The anxiety that needing to please others and desiring safe relationships puts on our life would not be nearly as overbearing because we know we always have him and the oneness we experience with him. Number three, we all would have more respect for the body of Christ. If we are one with him, then we are one with each other. Now that might produce some discomfort to consider, especially if you've ever been, you know, really hurt in Christian community. But scripture tells us that this is true. So those times we have slandered, that we have gossiped, criticized, spoken harshly, judged any other believer or denomination has ultimately been done against God and ourselves. Similarly, whenever anyone has slandered you, gossiped about you, criticized you, betrayed you, spoken harshly to you, manipulated you for selfish gain or judged you, It has also been done against God and the family. It really matters how we treat each other. You know, the Bible says to be devoted to one another. Devoted is a strong word. I have a Hindu relative who calls herself a devotee and she's like devoted to this particular guru and she is ridiculously committed. She listens to all his messages. She reads them. She visits his ashram, which is basically a temple. She gives money. And of course, she follows his teachings. And and when I say she follows his teachings, she follows his teachings. This is what we are supposed to be doing for each other. Loving and serving each other is at the heart of every believer, whether you like them or not, and whether you get developed to be a leader or not. It's sad to me that even service can become a place where we are geared toward personal gain. But we do. I know because I did it. Pastors even have to do that what's in it for me kind of strategy before they come out with an event or some sort of marketing because they know that that's the only way they can get people to participate. I mean, that's actually an oxymoron. If it's what's in it for me is the underlying, you know, motivation, then it's not really service. But anyway, that's, I'm sort of digressing here. Let's move on to number four. Number four, a more satisfied soul. We would actually have a more satisfied soul. When we realize how deeply bonded we are to Jesus in this oneness, there would be more chance of experiencing that nourishment to our entire being. 
No self-care strategy, no boundaries concepts can compare to what Jesus can do within us for our hearts. Don't get me wrong. Self-care matters, right? Boundaries matter. Of course. Like I've done the studies. I've done, like I've read the book. I've implemented boundaries myself, right? But Jesus is able to care even better for our souls than we are. And the Holy Spirit is positioned in the perfect place to do that. Jesus is rest for our weary souls. He would be able to show us how staying aware of how connected we are opens the soul for him to meet our inner needs. You know what I mean by inner needs, right? It's those things that we often are really trying to meet when we pursue those external objectives. Like the desire for financial security is probably more often driven by our desire for peace. Or the desire for a great lifestyle can be driven by our underlying desire for joy. I mean, our desire for relationship even. Like how many different inner needs are we really trying to to meet when we want companionship in life? And, and we're often willing to, you know, like have less than great relationships in order to have that. That's how desperately we have needs internally that we are seeking to meet. We will actually compromise just so that we can get the little that we can. We have these inner needs that the world has always tried to tell us how to meet. But the truth is they are found in the person of Jesus who has given you the Holy Spirit who can minister those things to you right now if you let him. You know, as a Christian community, I know some of us find it really uncomfortable to think of God this way. We've been told to revere him, and rightfully so, but sometimes this reverence can diminish the intimate kind of connection we truly desire in our inner being. We don't want to think of sharing such closeness and intimacy with God because we think it might take away from his sovereignty. And let's be honest, we also feel unworthy. To those of you in this category, let me remind you, this was Jesus's prayer for us. Oneness was what he prayed for. He could have prayed for a million different things. He could have prayed for the church, but he didn't. Not even once does he mention the ecclesia, the word for church, in the entire chapter of John 17. He didn't pray that we would work out how to engage non-believers. He doesn't even pray that the disciples would be able to spread the gospel. Of course, I'm not saying that he didn't care about those things. I'm simply saying that this oneness was really, really important to him important enough that he prayed for it at length and John included it in the gospel. You know, like it's actually crazy to me that we even think that our perception of God would change his sovereignty anyway. Like how important do we think we are? And you are right. We are unworthy of this, but it doesn't change that it is his desire. None of this has ever been about our worthiness anyway. It is about him, his worthiness to ask of us to pursue oneness with him. So just a bit of a side note, the school holidays are about to begin here in Brisbane. So once again, there will be more than a fortnight between this episode and episode 13, just so that I can actually really be fully engaged in spending time with my daughter. That's really important to me. But I encourage you to take some time to simply sit, quiet your mind and ask God to help you become aware of the oneness you have with him. Allow this deep bond that is already there. You don't even have to work for it. It is already there. Allow that deep bond to nourish you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.